Chapter Four of the Diamond Master by Jacques Futrell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four: The Unlimited Supply. If you will all be seated again, please," requested Mr. Wynne, who still stood cool and self-certain at the end of the table. The sound of his voice brought a returning calm to the others, and they resumed their seats, all save Mr. Cawthorn, who walked over to a window with the three spheres in his hand and stood there examining them under his glass. "'You gentlemen know, of course, the natural shape of the diamond in the rough,' Mr. Wynne resumed questioningly. "'Here are a dozen specimens which may interest you. The octahedron, the rhombic dodecahedron, the triacosoctahedron, and the hexacosoctahedron.' He spread them along the table with a sweeping gesture of his hand colorless, inert pebbles, ranging in size from a pea to a peanut. And now, you ask, where do they come from? The others nodded unanimously. I'll have to state a fact that you all know, as part answer to the question, replied Mr. Wynne. A perfect diamond is a perfect diamond, no matter where it comes from, Africa, Brazil, India, or New Jersey. There is not the slightest variation in value if the stone is perfect. That being true, it is a matter of no concern to you as dealers where these come from. Sufficient it is that they are here, and being here, they bring you to the necessity of concerted action to uphold the diamond as a thing of value. You said the world's output had been increased fiftyfold, suggested Mr. Schultz. Do we understand you prove it by these? The young man smiled slightly and drew a leather packet from an inner pocket. He stripped it of several rubber bands and then turned to Mr. Zenke again. Mr. Zenke, I have been told that a few years ago you had an opportunity of examining the Kohinoor. Is that correct? Yes. I believe the Kohinoor was temporarily removed from its setting and that you were one of three experts to whom was entrusted the task of selecting four stones of the identical coloring to be set alongside it? That is correct, Mr. Zenke agreed. You held the Kohinoor in your hand, and you would be able to identify it? I would be able to identify it, said Mr. Cawthorn positively. He had turned at the window quickly. It was the first time he had spoken. Mr. Wynne walked around the table to Mr. Zenke and approached Mr. Cawthorn. "'Suppose, then, you gentlemen examine this together,' suggested Mr. Wynne. He lifted a great glittering jewel from the leather packet and held it aloft that all might see. Then he carefully placed it on the table in front of the experts, and the others came to their feet and stood gazing as if fascinated. "'By Jove!' exclaimed Mr. Cawthorn. For a minute or more the two experts studied the huge diamond, one hundred and six carats and a fraction, beneath their glasses, and finally Mr. Cawthorn picked it up and led the way toward the window. Mr. Zenke and the German followed him. "'Gentlemen,' and Mr. Cawthorn now turned sharply to face the others, "'this is the Kohinoor. Mr. Zenke didn't mention it, but I was one of the three experts who had the opportunity to examine the Kohinoor. This is the Kohinoor. 
Startled, questioning eyes were turned upon Mr. Wynne. He was smiling. There was a question in his face as he regarded Mr. Zenke. "'It is either the Koh-i-Noor or an exact duplicate,' said Mr. Zenke. "'It is the Koh-i-Noor,' repeated Mr. Cawthorne doggedly. "'It seems to me,' interposed Mr. Schultz, "'that if the Koh-i-Noor was missing, somebody would have heard of it. "'I have not heard. "'Mr. Zenke made a mistake the other day. "'Maybe you did it today.' "'You have made a mistake, I assure you, Mr. Cawthorne,' remarked Mr. Wynne quietly. "'You identify that as the koh noor of course, by a slight inaccuracy in one of the facets adjoining the collet. "'That inaccuracy is known to every diamond expert. "'The mistake you make is a compliment to that as a replica.' He resumed his position at the end of the table, and Mr. Schultz sat beside him, Amazement was a thing of the past as far as he was concerned. Mr. Zenke dropped into his chair again. And now, Mr. Zenke, speaking as an expert, what would you say was the most perfect diamond in the world? asked Mr. Wynne. The five blue-white stones you mailed to these gentlemen, replied the expert without hesitation. Perhaps I should have specified the most perfect diamond known to the world at large. Mr. Wynne added smilingly. The Regent. Again Mr. Cawthorne looked around with bewilderment in his eyes. The others nodded their approval of Mr. Zenke's opinion. The Regent, yes, Mr. Wynne agreed. One hundred and thirty-six and three-quarter carats, cut as a brilliant, worn by Napoleon in his sword-hilt, now in the Louvre at Paris, the property of the French government. "'valued at two and a half million dollars.' "'His hand disappeared into the leather packet again, "'poised on his fingertips. "'When he withdrew them, there was another huge jewel. "'He dropped it into Mr. Schultz's hand. "'There is further proof that the diamond output has increased fiftyfold. "'Mr. Schultz seemed dazed as he turned and twisted the diamond in his hand. "'After a moment he passed it on down the table without a word.' A duplicate also, and Mr. Wynne glanced at Mr. Cawthorne. It is reasonably certain that you would have heard of that if it had disappeared from the Louvre. He turned to Mr. Schultz again. I may add that this fiftyfold increase in output is not confined to small stones, he went on tauntingly. They are of all sizes and values. For instance... He lifted still another jewel from the packet and held it aloft for an instant. "'The Orloff!' gasped Mr. Solomon. "'No,' the young man corrected. "'This, too, is a duplicate. The original is in the Russian scepter. "'This is a replica, color, weight, and cutting being identical, one hundred and ninety-three carats, nearly as large as a pigeon's egg.' Again Mr. Wynne glanced along the table. Suddenly the frank amazement had vanished from the faces of these men, and he found only the tense interest of an audience watching a clever juggler. For a time Mr. Schultz studied the Orloff duplicate, then passed it along to the others. "'The Grand Cullinan diamond weighs only two or three pounds,' he questioned in a tone of deep resignation. "'Maybe you have it in your package already?' "'Not yet,' replied Mr. Wynne. 
but I may possibly get that on my next trip out. Who knows? There was a long, tense silence. Mechanically, Mr. Zenke placed the three spheres and the replicas in an orderly little row upon the table in front of him, and the uncut stones beside them. Six, seven, eight million dollars worth of diamonds. "'Gentlemen, are you convinced?' demanded Mr. Wynne suddenly. "'Is there one lingering doubt in any mind here as to the tremendous find which makes the production of all these possible?' "'It is a miracle, Mr. Wynne,' admitted the German gravely after a little pause. "'There is something before us, as there never was in the world. I am convinced.' "'Up to this moment, gentlemen, the De Beers Syndicate had controlled the diamond market,' Mr. Wynne announced. "'But now, from this moment, I control it. I hold it there, in the palm of my hand, with the unlimited supply back of me.' I am offering you an opportunity to prevent the annihilation of the market. It rests with you. If I turn loose a billion dollars worth of diamonds within the year, you are ruined, all of you. You know that it's hardly necessary to tell you, and gentlemen, I don't care to do it. What is your proposition? queried Mr. Latham quietly. His face was ghastly white, haggard lines, lined by amazement and realization, were marked clearly on it. "'What is your proposition?' he repeated. "'Wait a minute,' interposed Mr. Solomon protestingly, and he turned to the young man. "'The syndicate controls the market by force of the reserve stock of ten or fifteen million dollars. Do we understand that you have more than these ready for market now?' Mr. Wynne stooped and lifted a small sole-leather grip, which had been unheated on the floor. He unfastened the catch and turned the bag upside down upon the table. When he raised it again, the assembled jewelers gazed upon a spectacle unknown and undreamed of in the history of the world. A great, glittering heap of diamonds, flashing, colorful, prismatic, radiant, bedazzling. They rattled like pebbles upon the mahogany table as they slipped and slid one against another, and then, at rest, resolved themselves into a steady, multicolored blaze which was almost blinding. Now, gentlemen, on the table before you there are about thirty million dollars' worth of diamonds, Mr. Wynne announced calmly. They are all perfect, every one of them, and they're mine. I know where they come from. You can't find out. It's none of your business. Are you satisfied now? Mr. Latham looked, looked until his eyes seemed bursting from his head, and then, with an inarticulate little cry, fell forward on the table with his face on his arms. The German importer came to his feet with one vast Teutonic oath, then sat down again. Mr. Solomon plunged his hand into the blazing heap and laughed senselessly. The others were silent, stunned, overcome. Mr. Wynne walked around the table and replaced the spheres and replicas in his pocket, after which he resumed his former position. "'I have stated my case, gentlemen,' he continued quietly, very quietly. "'Now for my proposition.' 
Briefly, it is this. For a consideration I will destroy the unlimited supply. I will bind myself to secrecy, as you must. I will guarantee that no stone from the same source is ever offered in the market privately, while you gentlemen, and his manner was emphatically deliberate, purchase from me, at one-half the carat price you now pay, one hundred million dollars' worth of diamonds. He paused. There was not a sound. No one moved. You may put them on the market as you may agree. Slowly, thus preventing any material fluctuation in value, he went on. How to hold this tremendous reserve secretly and still permit the operation of the other diamond mines of the world is the great problem you will have to face. He leaned over, picked up a handful from the heap, and replaced them in the leather bag. The others he swept off into it, then snapped the lock. "'I will give you one week to decide what you will do,' he said in conclusion. "'If you accept the proposition, then six weeks from next Thursday at three o'clock, I shall expect a cash payment of ten million dollars for a portion of the stones now cut and ready. Within a year all the diamonds will have been delivered and the transaction must be closed. He hesitated an instant. I'm sorry, gentlemen, if the terms seem hard, but I think after consideration you will agree that I have done you a favor by coming to you instead of going into the market and destroying it. I will call next Thursday at three for your answer. That is all. Good day. The door opened and closed behind him. A minute, two minutes, three minutes passed, and no one spoke. At last the German came to his feet slowly, with a sigh. Anyhow, gentlemen, he remarked, that young man has a hell of a load of diamonds, ain't it? End of chapter 4